We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Welcome to this week's We the Deplorables. I am your host, Sherry Wilson. This is a place for those who believe in faith, family, and freedom, who understand the country is in deep trouble, and it's up to us to bring it back. And on this episode, we're going to look at the role that clergymen played in birthing this country as an example of the courage and vocalization that's needed to reclaim America back to original intent. The Brits called them the Black Robe Regiment. These preachers are accredited with the formation and success of the Revolutionary War, the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence. They were also trusted advisors to some of our founding fathers. I'm going to rely heavily on some websites for the history, and all of the links are in the show notes, of course. But let me start with the conversation that I have with my son today. My son is, I guess you would call him a millennial. Uh, He doesn't act like uh, the typical idea of millennial, which I hate to box them all in, you know, because I know there are plenty of millennials that are not, you know, what most people that are maybe conservative or Trump supporters would call snowflakes and hot chocolate people and they need dogs to, you know, help them out in uh, difficult situations or that sit in the middle of Wall Street and scream their head off when a president they don't like is elected. He is very grounded. He's a creative. He's a musician, a worshiper, been homeschooled, but he's not weird, thank goodness. Uh, I mean, he just is a good all-around kid, very uh, grounded in his beliefs. And he was, we were talking today about some of the different things going on in our country. And he told me, he said, one of the things that really irritates him is the fact that a lot of Christians do not recognize the persecution that's already started in the United States of America against Christians. To them... Persecution is when you're dying for your faith or you're being beaten for your faith or you're being arrested for your faith, which, by the way, that's happening up in Canada right now. But they, they don't recognize persecution is also being silenced. Church is forced to shut down. For the first time in history, the church has literally been dismissed and told to sit down and shut up by their government. And there is an open hostility toward believers. In fact, Trump told many Christians in a meeting he had that the only thing that's stopping them from going after you is me. He also 
uh, repealed some of the Johnson Amendment and lessened the restrictions for us. He was one of the most pro-church uh, presidents we've had. And we're, I'm going to break down, by the way, all that happened with that and the election and Christians and their response to Trump and stuff in future episodes. But it reminded me of my other podcast. I have a true crime podcast. And uh, we just got done recording season two uh, last week. And in all of the cases, which the way our podcast works is we only take cases during the regular season that we can dissect and get some helpful tips and clues and cues, uh, red flags, things like that, to help other people. Maybe those that are in relationships and they're not sure if they're dangerous. Uh, I mean, you know, how to avoid uh, dangerous people, all of those things. And so we have these cases where you've got, you know, wives or girlfriends that were killed, like intimate partner homicide. And here's what's crazy. None of them were beaten. None of them were physically abused. There were signs, but they didn't recognize it because they only viewed abuse as being beaten. I think the church is the same way. It's like we're in an abusive relationship with our government, and we don't recognize that we're being abused yet. But if we don't stop it, if we don't recognize the gaslighting, the love bombing, the coercive control, if we don't start getting a handle on this, guys, we are definitely going toward persecution that most people envision when they think of that word. And so I want to encourage you through some of the stories I'm going to read, some of the things I'm going to share, to please gather up the courage that's needed. Be uncomfortable. Don't be, what's the word? Don't procrastinate. Don't stay comfortable. Don't have the idea that if you ignore it, it's going to go away. Don't be complacent. We have to take action. And for that reason, I have created the resource uh, on the website, which is in the show notes, called Take Action, Save America. You can download it. There are specific action steps you can take that rely heavily on from American Marxism by uh, Mark Levin. Okay, so let's dive into the Black Robe Regiment. I mean, I just absolutely love this. Okay, so I'm going to read this. This is uh, by Dan Fisher. And he was talking about the preachers who fought. Again, all links are in the show notes. On Sunday morning, January 21st, 1776, Pastor John Mullenberg climbed into his pulpit in Woodstock, Virginia to preach. In his black clerical robe, the traditional dress of 18th century preachers, Mullenberg preached from the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. He read how there was a time for all things. There's a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant, and a time to harvest. Then his voice began to rise as he said, There is a time of war and a time of peace. There is a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to pray. But there is also a time to fight, and that time has now come. Then he did something his congregation did not expect. He removed his clerical robe, revealing a colonel officer's uniform beneath. Mullenberg then stepped down from his pulpit and challenged the men of his congregation to join him in the fight for liberty. Just a few days before, he had been commissioned by General George Washington to raise a regiment from the Woodstock area. As Mullenberg walked down the aisle and out the door of his church, a drum began to roll outside. One by one, the men of Mullenberg's congregation filed out of the auditorium and volunteered to follow their courageous pastor. 
bidding farewell to their families, some 300 men rode away from Woodstock, Virginia, with Colonel John Muhlenberg to, uh, in the lead to form the 8th Virginia Regiment. Muhlenberg led those men throughout the War of Independence, fighting at the battles of Morristown, Bradywine, and Monmouth Courthouse. By the war's end, Muhlenberg had been promoted to Major General and had become one of Washington's most valued commanders. Muhlenberg was front and center at the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown. James Caldwell was pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. Because of his strong stand for liberty in his sermons encouraging the colonists to fight, he had made himself numerous enemies. So he would step into his pulpit each Sunday wearing two pistols, place them on the pulpit, and then proceed to preach powerful sermons about the need for Christians to stand for truth. When the war began, Caldwell became a chaplain in the Colonel Army. He was so hated by the British, they called him the Rebel Priest. When the war finally came to Elizabethtown during the fighting, the British killed Caldwell's wife. By the time he had completed her funeral, the fighting had moved to Springfield, New Jersey, so Caldwell rode there to join his men. During the fighting, the colonists were running out of wadding for their muskets. Caldwell jumped on his horse and rode to the First Presbyterian Church of Springfield and gathered up two armloads of hymnals written by Isaac Watts, a popular hymn writer of the era. He hurried back to his troops and threw the hymnals at their feet and commanded them to tear out the pages and use them for wadding. As he did so, he yelled, Give them Watts, boys, give them Watts. This is the uh, original of the famous phrase, Give them what for? On the night of April 18, 1775, as Paul Revere was making his famous ride through the Lexington, Massachusetts countryside yelling, The British are coming, the British are coming. He was headed for a particular house, the house of Pastor Jonas Clark. Jonas Clark, Clark was a pastor in Lexington, and on Sunday afternoons after church, he and Deacon John Parker, a captain from the French-Indian War, had been organizing the Lexington men into a citizen army to fight the British if they invaded. On the night of April 18th, Clark had two special guests staying in his home, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. The British had heard of Adams and Hancock's whereabouts, and they were marching toward Lexington to capture them. As Revere rode up to the front yard of Clark's home, Clark, Adams, and Hancock ran out to meet him. When they heard that the British were marching toward Lexington, Adams and Hancock asked Pastor Clark if the men of Lexington would fight. Clark responded, I trained them for this very hour. They would fight, and if need be, die too, under the shadow of the house of God. The next morning, April 19th, 1775, Pastor Jonas Clark and Deacon John Parker led the Lexington Minutemen out to face invaders. As the British approached the Minutemen, they cried out, In the name of the King of England, throw down your arms. The response rang out from the colonists, We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. Then Captain Parker said to his Minutemen, Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. Then the first shot rang out, the shot heard around the world. Isn't that amazing? These people, they saw no contradiction between their faith in God and fighting for the principles of liberty, even if it meant shedding their blood. The Black Robe Regiment preachers fanned the flames of liberty. In fact, if it wasn't for the clergymen, we wouldn't even have a Revolutionary War or an America General George Washington had tried several times to gather an army and it wouldn't work 
work. And he realized, I've got to have the church. The British viewed those pastors such a force that they're the ones that called them the black robed regiment. And King George III blamed the war on the preachers by calling it a Presbyterian rebellion. Horace Walpole, Walpole the English prime minister at the time, said there's no use crying. Sorry, that's my phone telling me it's time to pray. <laughs> but uh, he said there's no use crying about it. Cousin America has eloped with a Presbyterian parson. I mean, it was preachers from every denomination. But it was amazing the role that they had, which is in much contrast to most American preachers today. I mean, we've got far uh greater abuses of liberty overreaching federal government in our nation. We are down the road to socialism and most pastors are silent or they pull out Romans 13, which is ridiculous because let me tell you something. These people are going to keep quoting Romans 13 all the way to this, this country being ruined. It's like the frog that's put in water. The heat just slowly, slowly heats up until finally the frog is dead. And so we need more people like these brave, brave um, uh, clergymen. I just absolutely love that. According to blackrobeg, I think, .org, the Black Robe Regiment is a resource uh, and networking networking entity where church leaders and lay people can network and educate themselves as to our biblical responsibility to stand up for our Lord and Savior and to protect the freedoms and liberties granted to a moral people in the divinely inspired U.S. Constitution. The regiment had its historical beginnings during the Revolutionary War when pastors from across the colonies arose and led their congregations into the battle for freedom. Unlike today, the church during this time served as a center point for political debate and discussion on the relevant news of the day. Now, the last uh, updated appears to the website was like in 2015, but they have great, great documents that you can download there, uh, including some documents on the Johnson Amendment, which we'll get into in a second. But re remember, they had George Washington had tried to rally the colonies and they just weren't interested in fighting the British. Some, they supported the British. We were British. Most of us were British. Others, they just didn't want to bother. They, did, they were complacent. They wanted to stay comfortable. They figured that eventually things would maybe settle down. And they just didn't want to get involved. Now, that's not all, though. Um, I found out that Christians pastors were much, much involved even before the Revolutionary War. We played a significant role in the founding of this country, including the writing of the Declaration of Independence, which was basically nothing more than a listing of sermon topics that had been preached from the pulpit two decades before the Revolution, Revolutionary War. I had no idea. And a lot of our government and how it was formed was based on the ideas of the pulpits and what was preached. John Adams rejoiced that, quote, the pulpits have thundered and specifically identified several ministers as being among the characters, the most conspicuous, the most ardent and influential in the awakening and a revival of American principles and feelings that led to American independence. 
And then you've got like some quotes where it says that stuff like, as a body of men, the clergy were preeminent in their attachment to liberty. The pulpits of the land rang with the notes of freedom. If Christian ministers had not preached and prayed, there might not have been any revolution as yet, or had it broken out, it might have been crushed. The ministers of the revolution were like the Puritan predecessors, bold and fearless in the cause of their country. No class of man contributed more to carry forward the revolution and to achieve our independence than did the ministers. By their prayers, patriotic sermons, and services, they rendered the highest assistant, assistance to the civil government, the army, and the country. The Constitutional Convention, the written constitution, were the children of the pulpit. Had ministers been the only spokesman of the rebellion, had Jefferson, the Adams, James, Otis never appeared in print, the political thought of the revolution would have followed almost exactly the same line. In the sermons of the patriot ministers, we find expressed every possibly refinement of the reigning political faith. I mean, it's on and on and on. However, they, again, started way early. For example, the early settlers in Virginia, which was one of the main places we first landed, beginning in 1606, we had ministers like Reverends Robert Hunt, Richard Burke, William Meese, Alexander Whitaker, William Wickham, and more. They helped form the first representative government, the Virginia House of Burgesses, or Burgesses, I have no idea, uh, and its members were elected from the people, and then they would meet and the, James, the legislator would meet in the Jamestown church, and it was opened up by prayer. I mean, it's amazing. And the elected legislator sat in the church choir uh, to conduct legislative business. So the first movement toward democracy in America was inaugurated in the house of God and with the blessing of the minister of God. Then you have in 1620, the pilgrims that landed Massachusetts to establish their colony well, their pastor, John Robertson, charged them to elect civil le leaders who would not only seek the common good, but would also eliminate special privileges and status, status between governors and the governed. In other words, you can't have some that are elites lording over the, those that are governed. And so they did. They organized a representative, uh, representative government. They held annual elections. And then by 1636, they also enacted a Citizens' Bill of Rights, which was America's first. And if I'm not mistaken, our Bill of Rights was also taken from the Virginia one. So we've already got where these ministers are establishing representative government with elections and Bill of Rights. And then you have in 1636, the Reverend Roger Williams established the Rhode Island Colony and its representative form of government explaining that, quote, the sovereign original and foundation of civil power lies in the people. Then you have in the same year, Reverend Thomas Hooker, along with Reverends Samuel Stone, John Davenport, and Theophilus Eaton, they founded Connecticut, and they established the elective form of government, but in, 16, in 1638 sermon, based on Deuteronomy 113 and Exodus 18.21, Reverend Hooker explained that three biblical principles that guide the plan of government. Number one, the choice of public magistrates belongs unto the people by God's own allowance, the privilege of election that belongs to the people, and they who have power to appoint officers and magistrates, and other the people, in other words, the people, it's in their power also to set the bounds and limitations of the power and place. So from his teachings and leadership sprang 
the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, America's first written constitution and the direct antecedent of the federal constitution. This is crazy. This is crazy. Bible-minded Christians, they studied Moses and the law and how that nation was governed, and they took it and they created constitutions and Bill of Rights and governments in each of the colonies. In 1676, New Jersey was chartered, and they divided into two religious subcolonies, Puritan East Germany and Quaker West. Each had their own representative government with annual elections. And the governing document for the West Jersey was written by William Penn. It declared, We lay a foundation for after ages to understand their liberty. They may not be brought in bondage, but by their own consent, for we put the power in the people. He also said legislation was vested in a single assembly elected by all the inhabitants. The elections were to be by secret ballot. The principle of, quote, no taxation without representation was clearly asserted. Freedom of conscience, trial by jury, and immunity from arrest without warrant were all guaranteed. In 1681, Penn wrote the frame of government for Pennsylvania. It, too, established annual elections and provided numerous guarantees for citizen rights. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Christian ministers established America in America freedoms and opportunities that were not given in other countries, including the mother country of Great Britain. I mean, it's fascinating. It's absolutely amazing. And you don't hear this stuff uh, in history books anymore because they've tried to tell us that, you know, there's been a separation of church and state, blah, blah. No, it was the church that established the state. And because it was a church that established the state, then it only stands to reason that it is a demonically influenced movement in Marxism, American Marxism, and in our own government to overthrow the role that Christians have in government. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. You can go on and on and on. And so um, I have, uh, again, all of these um, resources in the show notes that you can go and study even more in there. But, you know, what's interesting uh, is Paul Revere, whenever he went to that home of Reverend Clark, and then, of course, Hancock and Adams were lodging there, um, and, of course, he trained him for this uh, very hour. The, uh, when the original alarm sounded in Lexington to warn of the oncoming British menace, menace citizens gathered in the terror, town green. Um, but the British didn't appear at the first alarm, so people returned home. Then there was a sub- subsequent alarm. They reassembled, and once the sound of the battle subsided, some 18 Americans lay on Lexington Green. Seven were dead, all from Reverend Clark's church. The teachings of the pulpit of Lexington caused the first blow to be struck for American independence, and historian James Adams added that the patriotic preaching of Reverend Jonas Clark primed those guns. Am I calling for us to bear arms against our own government? No, I'm not. But I am calling for Christians to step up because, again, we're in trouble. And it's pretty much a guarantee that um, if we don't do something, we're, uh, we're going to be in trouble here as a church. Already, many people say that we are a post-Christian nation. Uh, not only have we 
you know, played a huge role in the founding of this country, Christians also played a huge role in the abolition of the slave trade in both Britain and in America. It was devout Christians. And I don't care what people say, we were the ones that really pushed stopping slavery. And in, uh, on May 22nd, May 1787, 12 devout men assembled at a printing shop in the city of London. Most were Quakers, but they were joined by several Anglic- Anglicans, Woo, that's hard to say, including the veteran anti-slavery campaigner Granville Sharp and the young Thomas Clarkson, who would devote his entire life to the cause. The 12 established themselves as a committee for the abolition of the slave trade, and they recruited a young Yorkshire MP, William Wilberforce, to lead the campaign in the House of Commons. Charming, well-connected, eloquent, and evangelical, Wilberforce proved an inspired choice. He and his closest allies were fired with godly zeal for a righteous cause. Employed by an enormous well of support from across the British Isles, the cause was promoted in a flood of publications, sermons, pamphlets, treatises, poems, narratives, newspaper articles, reports, and petitions. And so, I mean, we all know the story. He, I think he was on his deathbed when they finally ended slavery. But in his dining room, they sat and created 500 laws. Now, were there some people that were Christian uh, or used Christianity to say God supported slavery, especially in this country? Absolutely. But many, many Christians saw how evil it was, and they went to work to get it destroyed. And I mean, you could like literally, you could find scriptures that supported probably both positions. But we know that God never, ever wanted man to be enslaved. The whole idea of bondage is being bound to sin, right? Like he came to give us freedom. He came to give us liberty. Where the spirit is Lord, there is liberty. So that right there, not to mention the idea of love your neighbor as you love yourself, that is a golden rule, and so to them, uh, slavery had to be abolished. And uh, so anyway, there's just a lot of great uh, content online that shows the role that we played. But listen to this as far as the United States. This is from Wikipedia. It said, Christian abolitionism in the United States, uh, the uh, abolition movement faced much opposition Bertram Wyatt Brown notes that the appearance of the Christian abolitionist uh, move, movement with its religious ideology alarmed newsmen, politicians, and ordinary citizens. They angrily predicted the endangerment of secular democracy, the mongrelization, as it was called, of white society, and the destruction of the federal union. Speakers at huge rallies and editors of conservative papers in the North denounce these newcomers to radical reform as the same old church and state zealots who tried to shut down post offices, taverns, carriage companies, shops, and other public places on Sundays. Mob violence sometimes ensued. Now, I think this is funny. I think it's people that are in conservative papers in the North denouncing those that wanted to get rid of slavery. Hmm. Has it changed much? 
A postal campaign in 1835 by the American Anti-Slavery Society founded by African-American Presbyterian clergyman Theodore S. Wright sent bundles of tracts and newspapers over 100,000 to prominent clerical, legal, and political figures throughout the whole country and culminated in massive demonstrations throughout the North and South. In attempting, in, a, in attempting to stop these mailings, New York Postmaster Samuel L. Governor unsuccessfully requested the AASS to cease sending it to the South. He therefore decided that he would, quote, aid in preserving the public peace by refusing to allow the mails to carry abolition pamphlets to the South himself with the new Postmaster General Amos Kendall affirming, even though he admitted he had no legal authority to do so. This resulted in the AASS resorting to other and clandestine means of dissemination. Despite such determined opposition, many Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterian members freed their slaves and sponsored black congregations in which many black ministers encouraged slaves to believe that freedom could be gained during their lifetime. After a great revival occurred in 1801 at Cane Ridge, Kentucky, American Methodists made anti-slavery sentiments a condition of church membership. Abolitionist writings such as A Condensed Anti-Slavery Bible Argument by George Bourne and God Against Slavery by George B. Cheever used the Bible logic and reason extensively in contending against the institution of slavery, in particular the chattel form of it as seen in the South. In Cheever's speech entitled The Fire and Hammer of God's Word Against the Sin of Slavery, his desire for eliminating the crime of slaveholding is clear as he goes so far to address it to the president. Other Protestant missionaries of the Great Awakening initially opposed slavery in the South, but by the early decades of the 19th century, many Baptist Methodist preachers in the South had come to an accommodation with it in order to evangelize the farmers and workers. Disagreements between the newer way of thinking and the old often created schisms within denominations at the time. Differences in views towards slavery resulted in the Baptist and Methodist churches dividing into regional associations by the beginning of the Civil War. But the point, again, is that it was Christians and our own government weaponized the Postal Service against us and would not let them mail out the flyers and all the information to all the churches. But this is a very good thing to do. We might need to go back to good old-fashioned mail. You've got Facebook that's shutting us down. you got Instagram, Google, all of those things. Maybe it's time to start creating some documents, some tracks, and some uh, sermons and uh, different types of materials and mail these suckers to all of the churches all over the United States. I think that sounds like a very good plan. In fact, that could be our action step. What are the topics that we need to alert people to right now? Well, obviously, critical race theory is a big one. Um, the election security is a huge one. Um, the Marxism that's trying to take over this country is a big deal. So those would be some good resources and things to begin to disseminate all over the country. But when did the church change? <clears throat> Excuse me. From an outspoken voice for freedom that literally formed a nation to basically an irrelevant organization that abdicated her role in society. Well, I believe a lot of it has been a misunderstanding of a believer's role in politics and society. There's even probably sermons that tell us that we shouldn't be. But the Johnson Amendment really chilled free speech from the pulpit. Now, let me get over here to that and give you um, 
what the Johnson Amendment did. And again, this will be in the show notes. But on September 28, 2008, more than 30 pastors from across the country stood in their pulpits and preached sermons that evaluated candidates running for political office in light of Scripture. They made specific recommendations to their congregations based on that scriptural evaluation as to how the congregation ought to vote, either supporting or opposing candidates from their pulpits. They were part of Pulpit Freedom Sunday, a project of the Alliance Defense Fund intended to present a direct constitutional challenge to the 1954 Johnson Amendment to Section 501c3 of the IRS Code. The pastors who participated in the Pulpit Freedom Sunday sent recordings of their sermons to the IRS and awaited enforcement action that might spark a constitutional challenge to the law. Only one pastor who participated was investigated, but the IRS dropped the investigation and there was no punishment taken. By 2009, it grew to 83. In 2010, the numbers grew again. It exploded uh, in 2011 to 539 churches. None of the churches that participated, save the one, were investigated, censored, or punished. Now, a lot of it is they probably didn't want to take it on uh, because it's very vague. There's, there's not really a lot of clarity on ex- exactly what they can enforce, what they can censor, et cetera, et cetera, which, of course, the law was created that way so that they can pretty much do what they want to do. It's very interesting that they didn't, but we have a lot of history supporting church tax exemption and that it should not silence or chill free speech. And so I would highly recommend that you read the uh, Regent University Law Review on this because the Supreme Court has even acknowledged that church tax exemption is part of an unbroken history in the United States that covers, quote, our entire national existence and indeed predates it. And so, more than 200 years of virtually universal practice embedded in our colonial experience and continuing into the present was what the Supreme Court saw. So, we were considered exempt from taxation during the colonial period, okay? So, it's been a part of our history. We have more standing to be, to be tax-exempt and to fight the Johnson Amendment than the Johnson Amendment has uh, in its ability to be enforced, So how exactly did it happen? Well, in 1954, Lyndon B. Johnson was running for re-election to the U.S. Senate seat from Texas that he occupied as a first-term senator. Johnson had won his first election after a very close and questionable contest in 1948, which earned him the unflattering uh, name of Landslide Johnson because he only won it by like 87 votes, which there was some speculation that there was some, uh, you know, um, what's the word, the usual Democrat um, rigging of elections because ballot box 13 was uh, destroyed by fire, which he prob- his opponent probably would have won. Well, his re-election opponent uh, in 1954 was Dudley Doherty, a 30-year-old first-term senator from Beeville, Texas, and Johnson dismissively referred to the communications as a young man from Beeville, but he was aggressive and he was an anti-communist and he was very popular among the McCarthyites back at the time that were seeking to expose and eradicate uh, communism. 
Johnson was expected to handily defeat Doherty and gain re-election, that is, until the entrance into the campaign of two very powerful, secular, non-profit organizations that were outspokenly opposed to the perceived rise of communism. One was called Facts Forum, and then the other one was the Committee for Constitutional Government. And they used their power uh, to resist Johnson. And according to one researcher, Johnson did not like the rising tide of national conservatism, especially McCarthyism, and he was concerned about the compatibility between Doherty's anti-communist views and the widespread conservatism in the Texas electorate. In other words, he's a Democrat, and most were conservative. And it was with some dismay that Johnson discovered that these two organizations were helping to advance that movement. So he took steps to investigate both of these organizations to decide if they were violating any law by supporting Doherty. And long story short, they, I mean, they weaponized the IRS. They um, wanted to create uh, the Johnson Amendment and, um, and basically you know, amend the federal tax code in a way that would silence these two organizations, and that's what they did. And now we have the Johnson Amendment. Now, the um, Johnson Amendment, which basically says that we cannot support or oppose candidates, nor can we support or oppose um, different uh, uh, topics, um, social or political stances, um, values, uh, again, it's really hard for them to even enforce the, um, the amendment and um, the line between what is prohibited and what is per- permitted can be difficult to discern, and there's not any precise meanings or perimeters, and so it's all very vague, but we also have where the IRS has said themselves that it actually will chill free speech, and they're not going to allow anything to chill free speech. Now, how long that will last in this country, I don't know. But the main thing is that the Johnson Amendment was designed to silence free speech. So now it's time to challenge the challenge to it and use our influence to let godly leaders push back on the progressive agenda and restore faith, family, and freedom in our country door-to-door from pulpit to pulpit. It's time to encourage voting for candidates that are, number one, pro-life. There is no excuse for any candidate that is pro-choice. No ethnicity, no gender, no party, no religion. It doesn't matter. You've got to research candidates, even those that claim to be Catholic. I remember one guy, you know, I he's a Christian, and so I thought for sure he would vote for a pro-life candidate uh, as governor of our, you know, our state. And he had voted for Grisham. And I was like, how could you do that? She's pro-choice. She believes in killing babies in the womb. He said, oh, no, she can't do that because she's Catholic. Hey, you guys better wake up. Biden's Catholic, Pelosi. We've got some Catholic leaders that are, are starting to speak out, but we need more. The Catholic Church is one of the most powerful forces in this country and the world. And if we could get people to recruit the Catholic priests to begin to get more vocal and speak out against political leaders that believe in killing babies in the womb and that will begin to speak powerfully to their congregations, which are dominant ethnic, ethnic or minorities, which actually white people are now minorities, but 
the traditional idea of minority, if we had more and more preachers that started to do that, guys, it would be so powerful uh, with pastors, preachers, and priests coming together to educate their congregations, we could take this country back. And let me tell you, I am stunned at people that believe in Jesus. They love Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit. And they voted independent or Democrat because they didn't like him as a person, and they felt he was rude. I'm not sure if it's always been this way or if we've always voted based on popularity versus issues, but he was the most pro-life president we ever had. Again, he lessened the restrictions of the Johnson Amendment, and he was the most pro-Christianity president ever. And yet people voted for Biden or independent because they wanted someone less divisive. That's very interesting to me because Jesus himself said he didn't come to bring peace, but division, a sword. Because sometimes division reveals the corruption. More discernment is needed by Christians and a tougher skin, but I'll get into that later. But I want to end with the main thought, and that's that Christians need to quit being scared and quit being so sensitive. We're not here to vote in a pastor as our president. We're here to vote in someone that will promote life and liberty and execute wrath on our enemies. That's what we're supposed to be voting in. So I want to encourage you to download the resource at our um, website, thehubapostolictraining.com or destinationchurchclovis.com. They'll go to the same place. Again, link is in the show notes. And it's Take uh, Action, Save America. I also want to recommend uh, reading tonight the book Founding Faith by Stephen Waldman. Now, I don't believe in all of his ideas when it comes to church and state and that separation, but it is a fabulous book that goes into the faith of some of our founding fathers and some of their lack of faith, because not all of them were Christians. Some were deists, some were outright Satanists, but they all knew the importance of faith in God, the importance of the church, her role in forming America, all of them understood it, and it goes into some of their thoughts and their ideas and how faith um, helped found our country. And so to take action, you know what, guys? I would encourage you to make a list of the topics that we could get out to churches instead of maybe mailing them, let's email them. I mean, there's so many things that we can do But we need to start creating a network of people that are willing to do what it takes to save this country. And it's going to start with pastors, preachers, and priests bravely sharing uh, on political matters. 